are going to recite the Apostles' Creed. <clears throat> All right. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Thanks so much for reciting with us. Y'all can have a seat. I feel like y'all have gotten better every week reciting that. Hopefully some of us have it memorized. We'll go back to our, our high church days. But um, a couple years ago, I joined this fitness gym. Some of you may be familiar with it. It is called Orange Theory. Hmm. Yes, yes. Okay, so Orange Theory, what Orange Theory is, is basically it's a similar to high-intensity interval training. So crazy people do it, you know, so that's why I'm doing it. But um, what it is, is you, it's about a 60-minute workout, and the reason they call it Orange Theory is because it's all based off of your heart rate. Okay, so everyone wears a heart rate monitor, and the goal is for you to spend at least 12 minutes in 84, 85% of your max heart rate, thus being called the orange zone. And that is this uncomfortable zone that you seek to be in for a certain amount of time because it's in that zone that change happens, right? Um, your metabolic rate can increase. You can burn more calories over the course of the next 36 hours. It's supposed to have tremendous health benefits. And so I started doing it a couple years ago with a few friends who convinced me to do it. And it's a ton of fun. Not only is it kind of this group fitness experience, but what I love about it is that you have a coach who is just motivating you throughout the course of this 60 minutes. And I've just learned to appreciate the coach, okay? Because here we are all together, running on a treadmill, doing a rower machine, you know, lifting weights, looking ridiculous, and it's like, why? Why am I here again? Why did I come? And so the coach, though, says these usually phrases or these mantras, and some of my favorites have been, you can handle more than you think you can, right? That's one of them. Or one of my personal favorites comes from Coach Sean, and he typically says it about 45 minutes into the 60-minute workout. And it says, and he says this, he says, you did not come this far to only come this far, right? Okay, and every time he says that, I usually kind of 
smile at my friend Elizabeth because we know it's coming. Like Coach Sean, it's his class, he will say it. But there's one phrase that continues to stick with me. And the coaches say it usually almost every class. And it's, I want you to get comfortable in the uncomfortable. I want you to get comfortable in the uncomfortable. And over the past several weeks, we have been walking through the Apostles' Creed. This is this ancient confession of faith where apostles came together and landed on through the scriptures of what would be an answer to someone who would ask, what is Christianity? And a theologian by the name Dr. Albert Moeller says that what's interesting about the Apostles' Creed is all Christians believe more than is contained in the Apostles' Creed, but none can believe less. And today, we are wrestling with that last belief statement of I believe in the resurrected body and the life everlasting. And when I think about that last statement of the Apostles' Creed, I can't help but think of that Orange Theory mantra, right, of getting comfortable in the uncomfortable. Because I think if each one of us would be honest, we would say that thinking about life after death can be uncomfortable. Because we have questions, because we live so much in the present that we don't want to think about the future. And frankly, thinking about death is just sad. And so we avoid pondering life, everlasting life after death. And my hope this morning is not to give us a long list of answers to the questions that we have because we couldn't do that in a whole series on heaven, much less 30 minutes. But my hope is that God would increase our curiosity and stir up our questions in what it would it be like to have a resurrected body and to live for all eternity. And so I hope we would get comfortable thinking about those things. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, the text should be on the screen, if you can see behind me. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth. He says, For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. 
Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God who has given us the spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So let's unpack what this rather complex scripture is saying about our resurrected bodies and life everlasting. First of all, I want us to consider what Paul is saying when he says the word groaning, okay? Groaning. To groan means to experience a kind of mental distress, impatience, or grief. Groaning can even be a form of sighing, okay? I mean, many of us were sighing last night, you know? Just sighing, right? Um, Isn't it frustrating, right, when someone sighs at you, maybe because they don't understand something that you said or they're frustrated by what you did? It's just like, (sighs) my older brother used to do that to me all the time, like, (sighs) you stupid girl. You know, like, it's pretty much, right, that's like older brother-sister rivalry going on, right? My dog even sighs at me, okay? So this groaning that we are experiencing in all seriousness, 2 Corinthians is talking about that every single one of us are groaning here. The first time that groaning is mentioned in the scriptures is in Exodus 2. The king of Egypt had just died, and the children of Israel are being enslaved. And in the midst of their distress, they are described to be groaning or crying out to God. And the scripture says that God heard their groaning and remembered the covenant that he had with Abraham. In the Psalms, other ways that we see groaning happen in scriptures, in the Psalms, David, in his suffering, cries out to God, saying, Lord, listen to my words, consider my groaning. Jesus, when he appears before his dear friend Lazarus, who has just died, says that he is found groaning in sadness. And Paul, in the book of Romans, describes all of creation groaning as in the pains of childbirth. And unfortunately, each one of us are not unfamiliar with this concept of groaning, of mental distress. And what's interesting is at times when we talk about even something like mental unhealth, it's easy to separate mental health from physical health. 
Neuroscientist Dan Siegel says that the mind is embodied, which means it is housed in your physical self and depends on your body to function. So it doesn't take a psychiatrist or a physician for us to know that there is a physiological response to our groaning. We see how interconnected the symptoms of the body are to depression, to anxiety, to PTSD. And it's clear in 2 Corinthians that something has gone wrong. Our bodies, which are known as earthly tents, are crying out, and we are crying out, why? Like, why are we crying out? And this passage says that we are crying out for four reasons. We are crying out because we are unclothed. We are crying out because we are unsatisfied. We are crying out because we are insecure. And we are crying out because we are homeless. All right, some of y'all are thinking, man, I came on the wrong Sunday, okay? I thought we were talking about heaven. But no, my hope is, is that we would recognize the ways in which we are groaning because the hope that we have in this passage is that one day we will be fully clothed. One day we will be fully satisfied. We will be fully confident and we will be fully at home. So fully clothed, what does this mean? Paul describes that our physical bodies are an earthly tent that can be destroyed. So whether we name it or or not, we know that our physical bodies are on a deadline. It doesn't matter how many miles we run. It doesn't matter how clean we eat. Each and every one of us know that there will come a day where we will no longer be here as we know it. And some of us have seen the realities of that. Some of us are walking in the realities of that with our loved ones through medical diagnosis, through other physical ailments, through other challenges. And we fight it, right? As we should, because God has given us so many medical advancements. We, we fight it in, in more surface level ways too. We fight it in diets. We fight it in gym memberships. We fight it in Orange Theory. We fight it in Botox and dermatologists, right? And all of those things, right, those aren't inherently bad to try to keep up our bodies, right? Because God has work for us to do here on earth. But at the end of the day, our physical bodies will die, but our essence will live on. Verse 1 says, we have a building, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Each follower of Christ that will have a heavenly dwelling. What does that mean? We will have a heavenly dwelling. So our physical bodies will die. Our spiritual selves will live on permanently. And one day our souls will have a new resurrected body. Philippians 3.20 says, But our citizenship 
is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. The promise here is that we will one day have a glorious body and our glorious body will look more like Christ than ever before. Our new body will be tailor-made to our new selves. N.T. Wright, a theologian, says that if Paul is right, a Christian in the present life is a mere shadow of his or her future self. The self that person will be when the body that God has waiting in his heavenly storeroom is brought out, already made to measure and put on over the present one or over the self that will still exist after bodily death. So that means that people we love like my mom who knows Christ as her savior but has MS will one day have a new body. That means people you know who are fighting physically will one day have a new body tailored to their renewed self in Christ. One day we will be fully clothed. One day we will also be fully satisfied. Verse 4 says that as long as we are in this tent, as long as we are in this physical, earthly body, we continue to have burdens and we continue to groan. But God promises every believer in Christ that one day we are going to be fully content, fully satisfied. Just think about that for a minute. Think about your deepest longing right now. That thing that just keeps coming up, right? It's this longing that you have. Is it to be financially secure? Is it for a better relationship with a family member? Do you have a deep longing for kids to have a better job? Maybe it's just to feel satisfied. Okay, if you grew up in the 90s like me, the Backstreet Boys would tell us that I just want it that way, you know? I don't even know to this day what is that way, that song, who knows, right? But I know that I want it, I, I want it that way. You know, what's interesting is researchers and neuroscientists, neurobiologists, they've all come together and they've said that our deepest longing, our deepest longing is connection. Our de deepest longing is connection because connection is being fully known. And we see that even in newborn babies, right? Dr. Kurt Thompson, says that we are all born looking for someone who is looking for us. If you ever see a newborn baby just looking, looking for her mom, looking for her dad, looking to be touched, her eyes are darting, just looking for someone to see him or her. 
But in heaven, we won't have to search any longer. Our deepest longing for connection, our deepest longing to be known won't even fully be met here on this earth. And it will be met when we come face to face with our maker who created us, who knows us, who knows our deepest longings, and we will be fully known by him. And that's why the more that we attach to him on this earth, the more we grow in our satisfaction. Because the more we realize how much he knows us, how much he created us, how much his desire is to be with us, it just deepens our sense of satisfaction. It deepens our connection to him. J.I. Packer says that hearts on earth say in the course of a joyful experience, I don't want this ever to end. But it invariably does. The hearts in heaven say, I want this to go on forever, and it will. There can be no better news than this. The promise of our resurrected bodies, our everlasting life, is that we will be fully clothed, we will be fully satisfied, and we will also be fully confident. Verse 5 says that the purpose God created for us was to be able to one day put on our heavenly dwelling. And the Holy Spirit that lives in us is our deposit, guaranteeing what is to to come. I love that word, guaranteeing. Because I don't know about y'all, but I feel like everyone I talk to these days I mean, we just feel insecure about the changes that are happening, right? The changes from the past couple of years, maybe the changes that are happening personally, maybe we've moved, maybe we've just had kids, maybe we've just gotten married, maybe we just started grad school, maybe a friendship has changed. It's just changed, it just looks different. And and this promise is that it's a guarantee that one day we won't have these insecurities, the securities that we find in other things. One day we will be fully confident. A couple years ago, um, a pastor friend of mine called me and she said, Rachel, I want you to come and talk to our 18 to 24-year-olds about insecurity. And I was like, I got it. I got experience with that, yes. And uh, so I hang up the phone, and I am prepping for this talk over the next couple of weeks. And you know what's really interesting is uh, I just start getting like these whispers, right? Of like, man, you don't really have anything to say to them. Or um, what if, like, what I have to say is not good as the last speaker, and then they just start comparing me to the last speaker? Or what if I say, like, what if what I have prepared is good, but, like, I butcher my delivery? 
right? Or, or, or what if like they don't laugh at that one joke? Like what? And so all of a sudden, the irony of it all is I am prepping a talk for insecurity and I'm feeling insecure. And I think many of us face that. Many of us are battling our own insecurities and we, we know the thing that God has called us to do, but that is the very thing that that we feel like we are fighting our insecurity in. We have insecurity in our abilities. We have insecurity in our stage of life. Maybe everyone else is in a different stage of life than you and you want to be in that stage and everyone in their current stage is wishing they were in a different stage. It's really interesting, you know? We're like, I just can't connect with them anymore because they're not really in my stage, right? But no one is in the same stage. So we, we keep going in this insecurity and stage of life where insecurity in the ways things are changing around us, insecurity with inflation and rising costs, insecurity in our future. But verse 6 says this, this special word that our future has a guarantee. That God has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Consider that for a second. Man, does anything feel like a guarantee these days? That our guarantee for eternity is not dependent on our own abilities. Romans 8, 16 says, The Spirit himself testifies or bears witness with our spirit that we are God's children. The Holy Spirit... He who lives in us is the one who guarantees our future. He is advocating for us. He is putting down the deposit for us, saying the home is hers. The home is his. We will be fully confident that we have been sealed for all eternity. We We'll be fully clothed, we will be fully satisfied, we will be fully confident, and lastly, we will be fully at home. One day, not only will we have these resurrected bodies that are fit to our renewed spirit, but we will have a home with the Lord. There's something in us that all longs for home isn't there. We long to create a space, this special space that is ours, that's our home. I was in Round Top, Texas last week with my mom, which Round Top is like the middle of nowhere. It's between Austin and Dallas, and there's this big antique show. It happens like three times a year. And basically picture 100,000 mesmerized women in boots and hats, okay, walking around looking for stuff to purchase for their homes. Okay, it's this really incredible experience. And when I was in college, I think about, man, my desire for home. I went to Austin uh, for college, UT, Hook'em Horns, right? But I was four hours um, south of the Dallas area, and I just, I still remember the drive going to my childhood home, 
You know, and sometimes college friends would come with me too. It's just this home that I picture. And my parents have since sold our childhood home. And, and, it's, and it's so funny though, but sometimes I still, I, I picture my room or I still remember being in my closet and I remember different memories about my home because there's something in us that just longs for home, longs for security and safety. Maybe that's how you feel when you pull up in your driveway. Maybe that's how you feel when you land at Philadelphia International Airport. Maybe that's how you feel when you are not at home, when you are somewhere else. It's something that God has given us, this longing, this groaning, this sighing, this calling out for home. He understands that longing. Pastor Matt Silver, who is at Experience Christian Church, he and I were talking a couple weeks ago about heaven, and he shared this quote with me. It comes from John Piper. It says, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth, and all the food you ever liked, and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ was not there? Emmanuel, that has been really convicting to me lately of asking myself that question, could I be satisfied in heaven if Christ was not there? How about you? Would you miss him? Would you notice if he wasn't there? The apostle John in Revelations 21 Says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Friends, the, the home that we so desperately long for is heaven with God. And the reality is, is that uh, we want to grow comfortable in the uncomfortable of this world because this place is not our home. It will never satisfy us. It will never fully give us all of the longings we so desperately want because our ultimate home, our ultimate satisfaction is to be with Christ, to be with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit because the promise is that we will be fully clothed with a new resurrected body that is tailor-made to us, that we will be fully satisfied with our deepest longings, that we will be fully confident 
and that we will be fully at home. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you, God, that even in the midst of our discomforts, even in the midst of our longings, that you still seek to satisfy us. And God, the only thing close to heaven is finding as much satisfaction in you as we can find. And so, Jesus, we ask that you would continue to stir up our ponderings of what one day will be life, because one day when we will be with you, everything will change. And God, we, we want our desire to be with you to change how we live today. And so, God, we ask that you give us hope, that you sustain us in the midst of our longings, that you would be who we desperately need as we know you are. And so, God, I ask for each person in this place, Lord, who is perhaps wrestling with their own dissatisfaction, their own longings, God, that you would um, draw near to them. And it, God, if there's someone in this room who doesn't know the hope of eternity because they don't know what it's like to have a relationship with you, God, I ask that today would be the day. And if that's you, you can simply quiet your heart before the Lord and ask him to come take control. The scripture says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And God is never done saving us. And so maybe this morning you would have that opportunity to say yes to him. And God, we thank you for the hope that we have that you have prepared a home for us. In Jesus' name we pray.